This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there, Knicks fans. How you doing? It's your boy, John of the Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. As uh, <laughs> as my daughter, Rex Havoc, with my wife upstairs. I'm sure you could hear that in the background. Um, Jeremy Cohen uh, is with us, as always, my co-hosts. Jeremy, how are you doing? Doing better. How are you? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, you know, like, like we were talking about before right. we came on. Yeah. Um, this has been... Um, yeah, you know, it's it's just it's been a draining a draining couple of weeks. Um and again, you know, the lots of thoughts on both of our minds. My God, they really are wrecking havoc upstairs. Um <laughs> lots of thoughts on both of our minds, lots of lots of thoughts about, you know <laughs> that we are so drained and, and God what that must say about the lives of other people that they have to live. Um <laughs> Every day, and it's just um, it's a lot, and I, I hope we're, you know, I hope we're getting somewhere. Um, yeah, hope we're. I, I yeah, but just you know, to repeat what I've said a few times in newsletter form and on here, I, I, I you know, distract distractions are important. I what? Let me ask you before we get to our next topic. What has been your go to distraction over the last two weeks, or ha- has there been more than one? Um. You know, if I'm being honest, I've actually been following everything about 24 seven. Um, I'd say the, the only distraction I've really had is I've been watching better call Saul. Okay. And I've really been enjoying it. I'm, I think I'm up to somewhere in season three, but yeah, I mean, everything else has been either my actual job or following the news, Twitter, and then, or doing both at the same time. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's. It's been tough, but I can only imagine for those who are actually living it every day uh, that how tough it might be. So, uh, so yeah, I'll go with Better Call Saul. And I'm glad that we have basketball back in the near future that we at least know that it's going to come back. Maybe not for the Knicks, but uh, things can start to get into motion. And, and that was a nice thing to see. Yeah. Um, I, it, it, I was listening to the um, – the, it was the Hoop Collective, uh, their last podcast. Um, with I think it was Wendy and Jackie McMullen and maybe uh, Tim Mc- noted Nick Hater Tim McMahon. Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, what can I say? It's a it's a it's a good podcast. A little silly sometimes, but it's it's good. Um, and they were basically you know I, I maybe this was reported somewhere else or or should have been easily inferred, but to hear it out loud was like it was a, way, a like a staggering that you know come July thirty first you know it, noon Eastern time. 
You're going to be able to like turn on the TV and there's just going to be straight basketball from noon all the way through until you're ready to go to bed and you wake up the next day and it's going to be the same thing. And it's, and considering the first round of the playoffs is probably going to be four games a day for the entire first round. Um, I mean, we're looking at four to five weeks, maybe probably five of just, just wall to wall basketball, which is, you know, I'm excited. Are you excited about that? Oh yeah. It's like you're saying, it's going to be so odd to go from nothing to something. Yeah. And so much something. (laughs) Right. And I do like what the league is doing. I mean, granted, I can't help but think that they did why they did it was for marketing reasons. I think the Pelicans are a shining example of that, but the fact that we even get some form of entertainment is fantastic. And I'm still very curious as to how they'll do it, especially in a place like Florida, which is seeing a lot of COVID uptick even recently. Um, But Hey, you know, as long as they're taking care of it safely, as long as the players feel comfortable enough to make this deal, then I'm 100% for it. I don't see how we couldn't be. I'm just curious as to how those eight games shift playoff seeding and most importantly for the Knicks' sake, how that affects where their pick, the Clippers' pick, and any other picks that uh, are of their rivals, how that works. Like, for example, the Sixers, they could easily gain their pick back or they could lose it. They're just on the the cusp of, uh, it's like a, a, tea, um, a seesaw where they're just on one side they could do it and the other side they can't. So um, it'll just be really fascinating to see what the ramifications are. Yeah. And, you know, well, let's we can talk about that real quick. I mean, the Clippers. Right. So right now it's slated to be the 27th pick in the draft. Um, the Clippers are if we're looking at just, you know, how far in front they are, they're a game ahead of Boston, a game and a half ahead of Denver. Um, and then they are three games clear of Utah. So I, we could probably stop. Well, and they're three and a half clear of, of Miami. We could probably stop right there because even though maybe, th- so you say three games back, eight games, like that's not a lot. They have eight games to play. Well, for a, for a team to make up three games in eight games, they would need to go um, eight. Essentially, if they went, let's say seven and one. Um, and keep in mind, there are no bad teams any of these teams are playing. They're all they're playing mostly good teams. For a team to go seven and one, that means the Clippers would need to go four and four, for instance, for Utah to catch them. So I don't think it's realistic that they would fall too far, but maybe falling to like the twenty fifth pick. Yeah, um, one to two with Denver and Boston. Yeah, work. and that, you know, I mean, look, like doesn't sound like a lot, but we, you know, who the hell knows how the, uh, the draft is going to take out or shake out? Um, I, I certainly will be. Uh, We'll be rooting against LA. We still haven't heard how the the schedule is going to shake out. I think a lot of people just assume that they're gonna like the teams will play their next like the games that they are have next on their schedule against the teams that are actually participating in this. Um which for the Clippers, for instance, would be Brooklyn, New Orleans, Dallas, Denver, Phoenix, Brooklyn, um Indy. Sacramento. So they actually have kind of an easy-ish slate if we're so that's you know doesn't doesn't bode well. But there is that game against Denver, Dallas, you know, New Orleans is looking good. So I don't know. We'll see. And we don't know how these players are gonna do after four well, more than that, right? Four to five months off of nothing. I mean, 
some players are training elsewhere, but what is their stamina like? How is is training camp really going to bring them up to speed well enough? Are these games, the regular season, going to be treated by some teams as effectively just preseason in the sense that their lottery standings or their um, their seating isn't really that important? Like if you're the if you're the Bucks, do you even really bother playing Giannis more than say three or four games? I don't. That's I don't see question. the reason. You're already up six and a half games on the Raptors. So unless you what lose all, all yeah, I mean it's, they completely? have it, they have it locked up, and it's right. not it's not even like they have uh, home field or uh, home field home home court in the uh, you know the the finals to worry about because you know it's not such a thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, but I'm 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 curious to like I I wrote the the newsletter on Friday about like the top ten players I'm keeping my eye on for this uh for when the nba returns and i really i'm you know sometimes i'll write stuff that's more a thought exercise like i'm really curious to w- look at a lot of guys who i fully expect to be nick targets you know maybe not this summer or i, I keep saying this summer this offseason but in the near future like and i i you know i'm gonna have a more lengthy piece coming out on si this week about it but like philly man i'm that situation, I, I, to me, that is the most obvious situation that every Nick fan should be keeping their eye on, you know? Cause if like, can you imagine if, if like, for instance, if Embiid showed up out of shape and they look like shit for in the regular season games and then they got smoked in the first round of the playoffs or whatever the equivalent of the first round is here. Like, I don't know. You don't think there would be some noise this offseason? So of the 10 players that you listed, I actually walked away feeling that the the guy who made the most sense, at least to be dealt, would have been Embiid or would be Embiid. The fascinating thing about the Sixers is their home versus away disparity. So they went 29 and 2 at home yeah. and they were 10 and 24 on the road. That's insane. And right now they're currently uh, the sixth seed. So here's the thing. You're not going to get home court advantage even if you – if this were even a regular season unless they were able to catch up. The odds of them getting it are unlikely. How are they going to do against a team like probably if we're looking at the standings, it's going to be the Heat or the Celtics most likely. How do you how do you match up against them? How do you win? And if you don't and if you're out in the first round, what are the ramifications of it? And it's – so I agree. I'm, I'm fascinated by them. I'm really curious also about what the Rockets do because – Why is that? They strike me – well, just they strike me as a team that I believe is really in the last year of contention okay. because I, I really don't see how um, Mr. Furtada keeps the band together based on how <laughs> so money polite involved. Mr. Furtada. Well, Tillman Furtada is just like for you. First uh, of all, you called him Furtada. <laughs> so he's an egg dish. Oh, yeah. uh, he's the, an egg. He's an egg. He's an egghead. Um, uh, so yeah, that's the thing. I, I think that there are some financial concerns that he might have to deal with and dismantling the Rockets in some way, especially if Mike D'Antoni is out. Uh, there's a whole thing with Daryl Morey, which was so fascinating, especially the the conversation with Trump. Uh, you probably remember it where Trump and yes. uh, Fertitta talked and Trump said, you know, is he still working for you? And Fertitta said, you know, like, yeah, it's a trick question. And and what was so fascinating about that to me is someone pointed this out. It was like someone saying, hey, do you still beat your wife? And it's, it's like, well, because because how do you answer oh that God. question? It's either, yeah, I am, which implies that you were before or no, I'm not, which implies that you were before. So 
it was such a loaded question for him. And obviously yeah. don't endure abuse in that sense at all. Obviously it shouldn't. No, no, no. I, I, we know point being, it's just like, it's such an interesting position to put him in. So those are the two teams that I am most fascinated by in terms of where their futures lie, because I think that they're both probably going to have Brett Brown will be an interesting story, but I think Brett Brown could easily see himself being axed because of what's going on with his team. And the fact that after last year, as crushing as that was and how close they were to make it to the next round, um, losing the first round would be pretty crushing. So even, even in these circumstances, and I think that's the interesting part, right? Is like how much of a get out of jail free card is the fact that this is, you know, such a bastardized version of, of the league, you know? Yeah. And, and we don't know the answer to that question. He's the perfect scapegoat too, because if you're Elton Brand, you're probably a little concerned. You just gave out a huge contract to Al Horford. It's not paying off well. You've got Ben Simmons, who's about to be on a max contract next year. You've got Joel Embiid, who's in the middle of a max contract. You've got Tobias Harris on a max contract. You've got Josh Richardson getting paid, I think, around $11 million a year. And you have just you have very little shooting around you, little creativity, and it's just a big problem. And I could easily see the Sixers falling flat and them pushing him, throwing him under the bus, him being Brett Brown, and then trying to create something. Or if that doesn't work, maybe they try to make some other big change. But yeah. that's why I felt Embiid would be, of those players, the most interesting because of where he's at. Obviously, the connection with Rose, the fit. Um, I think that you could also make an argument where even though I wouldn't say Ben Simmons is a better player than Embiid, why building around Simmons would be a better idea potentially. It's just um, – Well, I think it's – Yeah, a, just fascinating. I think it's the, the question that is still – has not been answered is can you build around both of them? And um, I, I, I agree with you that in the circumstances of what the NBA is going to be returning to, it's far more likely that they would – Axe Brown this summer. I, I I think the I don't know how you feel. Me reading the tea leaves with Houston, it seems like it's the worst kept secret in the NBA that D'Antoni's gone. So that I think is already done. That's that's why that that situation doesn't intrigue me that much because I think that's going to be their scapegoat, and we're going to get another year of Harden and, and Russ regardless. But with Philly, I same thing. I think they're going to they'll axe Brown if it goes really badly, as opposed to trading one of the big two. Um, you know, but then. But then that that situation automatically like it goes on the clock because look, Embiid's going to be a free agent in three in three seasons um, after this one, and that like that you know life to quote you know everybody's favorite eighties movie, life comes at you fast. Um, <laughs> it's I know you were you know s- several decades away from being born when that movie came out, but um, de- I was less than a decade. Yeah, so go on. Uh, you no, <laughs> you were at what are you twenty six, seven, six, five, twenty five, twenty five, eighty six. Did it come out in eighty six? Yeah. I'm almost positive it did. Because if that's the case, it was less than a decade. No, no, no. Continue. Yeah. So let's, we'll say a decade. <laughs> um, in any case. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, and plus it's like the, I, we've gone on a long time about this. So we'll go back to, we'll go to our, our question of the episode after this. But like, just briefly, we always get caught in the same uh, conundrum, I guess, when talking about big fake Nick trades, which is that, well, if the Knicks give up enough to get player X, um, they're not going to have anything left to use to build around player X and are going to be left reliant completely on the right 
you know, the right guy coming in free agency. And I think that conversation is a good conversation to have about pretty much anyone in the league that you could see potentially maybe possibly getting traded in the next year and change with the exception of Embiid, because Embiid is the one guy, in my opinion, and I'm sure people will disagree with me. He's good enough to be the best guy on the championship team. So then you don't have to sit around and wait for a Giannis or a Kawhi or whoever else your top banana is. It's like you just need to figure out how to build around that guy. And that's, you know, of all the chances that you you could take building a team, I like to me, that's why, you know, like like you, he's the most interesting one. But um, yeah, so we'll see how we'll see how it goes. So our question of the hour, as proposed by by you, and I stole it from my SI article, which came out um, earlier today. We're recording on a Sunday is was this season a failure um, for the Knicks? And actually, no, I guess I didn't steal it from you. I kind of did because I wrote about whether the season is a waste of time. So why don't we start with that? Is there a difference? Is there a difference between a season being a failure and a waste of time? That's a great question. Um, I th- I think there is a difference. I think so yeah. too. Because you know, I mean, you you can say that this was a failure, but for individual players, it wasn't a waste of time. Like I would point to what we were seeing from the younger players towards the end of the season before the shutdown where it didn't strike me as a waste of time for how they're progressing. But I would still say that all in all, if you were to take from the start of free agency into where we're at now, that yes, it is a failure, generally speaking. You can find silver linings and they- Well, wait, where are we starting? Where are we starting? Are we starting at June 29th and assessing from that date forward? Or are we starting from, I uh, I guess it would be- uh, whatever, like the start of training camp or, you know, essentially. I would say usually the way I think of it is the the financial calendar or the fiscal calendar for the NBA, which is from in last year's case, June 30th until, okay. you know. So June it's from 29th. the from the moment that they started making making transactions for this year. OK, got it. Right. And, you know, you can talk about the Porzingis trade and how that affects everything. But to me, they're one they bleed into the other because they are related but they are by no means the same year i i think that there is a clear divide between that season and this season because there were also different approaches um there was the one approach of hey the, we want to get superstars and then there was the very fast approach of all right we're not getting these guys so what path are we going to take next so but to, to go back to this question, yes, I think there is a difference between saying that it was a failure versus a waste of time. Um, I, I agree. And the thing that brought that point home for me more than anything else was really thinking about RJ. And oh, my God, do I have some people that hate me now after after the conversation we had about <laughs> RJ on this podcast? Um, and I guess I also see th- this is. I didn't think I was throwing shade at RJ when I wrote in for for SI that he he has not, he is he has not does not profile as a guy who will ever make an All NBA team. And a couple people, you know, in my mentions were like, "You you know, you're a fucking hater." And I'm like, "I don't am I? I'll ask you because you're pretty impartial. Am I? Is that me being a hater?" You know, like here's here's the way I look at it. Can RJ Barrett be one of the top 15 players for one season? Can we get and, more specific? Can he be 
one of the top 12 wings or guards, essentially, because that's really what the NBA all NBA team has come down to. We have three big men and we have f- uh, 12 wings slash guards, which is where yeah. the very best of the best usually reside, because usually you're getting a, a center to, that's going to sneak in there. Right. Yeah, and since the pool is opening up, I would say I don't see why he can't make at least one appearance. Again, I, I think I, I tend to side more in that I think that he can be um, special, but maybe not in the sense of a game changer. I think he can be a star, but not a superstar. And I don't think it's something wrong with that. And hopefully he he turns out to be much better. I think that there's a lot of room for him to grow. And I'm so curious as to what he's like, not just as he's progressing next year, but in the hopes that this team actually gets some sort of spacing around it. Because, and I think you talked about this in your article where it's like, he's never hopefully going to have this much of an issue where he's having Alfred Payton and Julius Randle and Taj Gibson in the starting lineup with him. So even if you take out one or two of those guys and add some sort of spacing, then you're looking at a player who can operate more. You talked about the driving lanes. That's certainly a factor. But he's just a smart player who is so committed that I don't see him – and I know you don't either. I don't see him failing, uh, but I, I can see why you're saying what you're saying in terms of if he'll ascend as far as people want him to. And I, I still think that at, at, at worst he, he can towards you – know, again, just even if it's one season towards his prime, I think he can still get there. But I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic in that sense. No, and, and look, I'm optimistic because of the work ethic, because of the type of character of a kid that he is, um, because I'm I am incredibly bullish on the his best skill, which is being able to get to the line at will. I think like everybody has their own kind of hills that they die on on the NBA. I'm still like the free throw is the best shot in basketball. And the more of those you could get, the best off you'll be. I am not worried long-term about his free throw shooting. I just, it's, it it comes down to the shot for me. And he's a, he's still like, look, we can't escape the fact that if he's a player that if the shot doesn't come around in a significant way, it really, really, really does cap what kind of guy he's going to be. But to, to my original point, um, I think this year, was anything but a waste of time for him because he is never going to have to deal with circumstances as as piss poor as they were for him this season in which it's like, you know, um, I don't love this movie, but, you know, if you could dodge a if you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball like this year was dodging a wrench, dodging many wrenches um, or as it were standing in the corner and waiting for the, the wrench to be passed to you and, and you know, continuing with the wait. Um, so I think it was actually a really great experience for RJ Barrett this season, probably better than if he had been placed in an ideal circumstance and he would have been like, just kind of like, for instance, who grew more RJ Barrett this year or Jason Tatum, his first year in Boston? Like that's an honest question. I would argue that RJ Barrett grew more this year because of the circumstances. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think you can also grow pretty well if you have the right pieces around you to help you thrive where it's like just saying, okay, I'll, I'll have to do this myself because the team around me sucks versus well, yes. you know, players who are, who are helping and complementing my skill set and a coach that can actually bring the best of my skills out. So this is all great for me. So I, I don't know if I fully agree. And I also, the most offensive thing you had just said was that dodgeball is not a good movie. It's fine. But, uh, no, it's better than fine. It's oh, excellent. God. But, 
That's another conversation. It's a funny movie. Um, I look, it did it. Did it reinforce a few of RJ's more selfish tendencies, the being on this team this year? Yeah, I think so a little bit. And that I think was echoed in the reports that he, him and Julius Randle were, um, not called out in that team meeting way back in December when Fizdale got fired, but like his, you know, he, he was mentioned as someone that needed to pass the ball more. Yeah. Um, you know, you know that I think, you know what the cop is? I, I don't, I don't like to talk about my time in, in the field of law because it was so miserable. Um, but my first job out of law school was working for a solo practitioner that we did not have a paralegal for a while. We didn't even have a secretary. It was just me and him. We were essentially starting a firm from scratch and I needed to do everything. And then I went from that to, it was miserable. And then I went to that to a firm, a regular personal injury firm, which ended, I ended up looking at as like, wow, this really sucks, which is why I'm not a lawyer anymore. But for the first like six months, I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Like there are people that could like make copies for me. Like I imagine that that is what RJ could feel like if they actually put some spacing around him next year. In any case, um, I, I love RJ Barrett. Please don't think that I hate RJ Barrett. I just think, you know, all NBA teams, you know, it's tough to make an All-NBA. You know, John Wall only made one All-NBA team. Kemba Walker, one All-NBA team. Wes Unseld, Hall of Famer, just passed away. Rest in peace, Wes mm-hmm. Unseld. Only made one All-NBA team. Latrell Spewell, one. Uh, Derek Rose, one. Rajon Rondo, one. Um, Oladipo, one. It's like Earl Monroe. Do you realize Earl Monroe only made one All-NBA team? It's like, I'm telling you, it's hard. That's why, that, yeah. listen, that's, that's well, I will say that, um, and you pointed this out as well, that it's very hard to do it as a point guard. And then some of the other players have suffered injuries that we, we kind of have to wonder what if, but I'm, I'm with you in that it's very hard. And I'm, I'm curious, you may not know this, but if you do, was Wes Unseld's uh, all NBA season, his rookie season? It was. Okay. So that's, <laughs> that's going to be tough when you're a rookie of the year, <laughs> all NBA and the MVP. And then you essentially peaked as great of a career as he had. Yeah, I no. I mean, he was finals MVP a decade later, so there's that. But like, it worked out for him, but yeah. Kyle Lowry, Eddie Jones, Larry Johnson, all of these guys, Al Horford, all of these guys made only one All-NBA team. I think, I want to say Ray Allen, hold on, I'm going to look this up, because like, like Ray Allen, first bout Hall of Famer, a guy that like, you know, is awesome. Um Two-time All-NBA. Yeah, 10-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA. Okay, that's it. We don't have to talk about this anymore because I we've drawn on long enough. But I, I need to defend myself, so that's my defense. Um, okay. So it was not a waste of time for RJ. Was it a failure? Um, what's, your, what's your answer to the question? Let's start there. Was this season a failure? Yeah, it was. <laughs> that, is, that is the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> But again, um, and I think this is the first silver lining you could find, is that it led to new management. It was almost like things had to reach such a boiling point for there to be some sort of turning of a new leaf. And, you know, I there's some signings that were problematic. And, and granted, at the time, there were things that I thought would work out. I am not ashamed to admit that at the time, I thought, hey, Alfred Payton being able to find spot-up shooters and the Knicks are getting a lot of these guys who are good at spotting up or – uh, they're catching sh- and shooting well. It, it makes sense. They're spreading the floor. They're spacing it a little bit better. I didn't think that the defense would be great, but I thought you're at least spacing it enough to to have avenues for a guy like RJ. And it didn't work out that way. Um, 
I guess the the thing about this past season is I believe we'd have a, a different perspective on it if the Knicks were able to finish out their year. Because what probably happens is that in the last 10 or so games, the Knicks start to break it down. They rest their veterans a little bit more. They play the young guys a little bit. We saw what a player like Frank Nielakina was doing in the in the final eight games. I mean, even that Washington game, it was you could see there was a clear buildup there. RJ was going off. Mitch was doing really well. Knox, unfortunately, still was not there. But the point being is that you could see these guys who they were they were starting to turn a corner in some capacity, and they were robbed of that, unfortunately. So if that had been able to continue, it feels like less of a failure because sure. Your primary objective is out the window, but you're still able to to make something out of nothing here. And the Knicks being robbed of that makes it unfortunately more of a failure than it was. But again, it got it got a coach out of here who needed to be out of here. It got an executive out of here who absolutely needed to be out of here. Uh, it netted a first round pick, which is a positive, sure, and it netted a second round pick for next year, which I think will be very good, very positive for the Knicks. But you're just looking at a team that. Well, I still expected 26 wins still managed to disappoint me. It almost feels like that sign where it's like my expectations were so low and I still wound up disappointed. But <laughs> so be it. You know, it's it feels like it can't get worse. And I know that we have been saying that for so many years, but I'm at the point where really it feels that there is a semblance of a foundation and you now have someone who knows how to work the money well and the talent well, and navigates the agency path well. It all feels like it can only improve from here. So it's it's okay to say, hey, this sucked, and this was a failure because it's still going up at this point. Um, I think that was very well said. Um, I don't disagree with anything you said. Um, I the the obvious answer is yes. And it's the easy answer and it's the correct answer. This, this season, especially, especially if we are going to start it at June 30th. Um, yes, the season was a failure. That said, I want every Nick fan listening to this right now to imagine a scenario where the Knicks won. How many more would they have had to have win? They would have won four more games. So they would have a record of 25 and 41. Um, and they would be actually, it wouldn't even require that. They could win if they could have won three more games and they would have a record of 24 and 42. Um, now if I've done my, Quick in my head math correctly. No, that wouldn't get them there. So it would need it would need to be four more. So twenty. Sorry, I'm wasting time. Twenty five and and forty one. That would mean they would be sitting in a virtual tie with the Washington Wizards, and they would be going to Orlando, and they would be playing in this. They would be playing eight more games. Um. Now, how would those? Four extra wins have come about. They would have come about in, you know, the same fashion that many of the wins this year came about. And that would be on the backs of the veterans that were signed, because how many wins this year of the 21 can we really say were like on the backs of the kids primarily? Like the Houston win comes to mind. 
that was why I think that was why that was everybody's favorite win. Mm-hmm. But other than that, is there any win that is like, oh yeah, that that's the one game where like three of the four best players were like the younger players, or even like two of the three best? Like I can't think of another one off the top of my head. Maybe one of the Chicago games. Okay, maybe. May- okay, um, so so whatever. Let's say there's others we're not thinking. Of. Let's say there are four wins out of the twenty one. So the the the, the extra four wins that I'm that I'm like proposing like in this imaginary scenario came about the same way most of them did, which is like one or two of the young players has a good game, but mostly the veterans did enough. There was some good shot making maybe by Julius Randle or Marcus Morris when he was here. You know, Alfred Payton was really getting to like, okay, great. They're going to Orlando, which means they are guaranteed to have no better than a snowball's chance in hell at winning the lottery. Maybe that's a big pushing it a little bit much, but more or less. And my, and this is what it really comes down to. Maybe the team is still being run by Steve Mills and Scott Perry solely. And there's no draft pick to look forward to on the way. Um, there's an argument that maybe they would bring more of these guys back because they, they technically like made, they make the postseason, but like they got invited to like the, you know, this Orlando thing. Um, and then where would we be compared to where we are right now? And listen, I understand this argument is the argument that people made in favor of Scott Perry and Steve Mills on like July 1st, which is basically like, hey, they didn't fuck it up. They didn't sign any long term contracts. Um, we still have all this flexibility. We have draft picks, blah, 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 which is not an argument I'm a big fan of because like. If your baseline of competence is not fucking up, you need to get a better baseline of competence. Um, <laughs> but like, true. no, but, but you get my point, right? It, mm-hmm. it, which is that there is a way that this could have gone so, 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 so much worse when we're talking about the long-term future. And it didn't get that way. So that's why I like, yeah, it was a failure, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Like, like, there's two ways to look at it. That's all. I guess my biggest question is how do Leon Rose, Scott Perry, and the rest of the front office navigate so that next year is not classified as a failure? Because, and this is something I've been doing is well, what's as the I've goal? Been, what's the right. We have to think of a goal? Exactly. So, as I've been thinking of, uh, as I've been doing these pieces for um, spending money, I've been trying to think of what does an ideal lineup look like what is a good roster but it's not that easy because i could just pick a bunch of players and say hey this works let's let's roll with it but i'm also trying to think in a realistic sense so as i have this list of players that i think would work well i'm also thinking okay well here's the thing you could get players that better complement the younger guys and i think i'd be okay with it but at the same time missing out on a great draft in some capacity by doing better that that doesn't sit right with me but doing poorly to the point where you're not really building much and it is a deep draft so there's still a chance you can get talent later and you do have two first round picks and hopefully you can do something with other picks and let's also not forget that you have two what are probably going to be great second rounders that if you needed to trade up you probably could so so what exactly is not failing next year? And I think it ultimately comes down to whether you're in the camp of this team needs to start winning 
or this team is still looking for their alpha and needs to lose. And honestly, I think you could make a very compelling case for either. But uh, it's the problem is that if you it's that middle ground, right, where you're you're kind of copying what you did this year that makes it feel like it was still a waste because you're in no man's land where that to me is is where things get very problematic. I agree completely. And I think. Like, here's my very simple analysis of this year. If you took and again, this is I, I it, tell me if this sounds crazy. But if you took everything that like Marcus Morris accomplished and instead Kevin Knox accomplished all of those same things, like I think the thinking about it, to me, it really does come down to Knox because Mitchell Robinson, is I think, gave us a season that everybody's happy with. R.J. Barrett you know, despite my being a little harsh on him, everybody seems to agree that if you had to do the draft over again one year later, you RJ Barrett would still be the third pick. All right, so that's two for two. Hey, Frank Nelkina had, you know, he's fine. He was fine. Maybe in the the season that, if you were a mild optimist, you would expect. You know, found a nice little bench roll, whatever. I think it. I think like the reason the 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 season was and like I, I'm thinking about this because you're talking about like an alpha. I think even if they don't have an, an alpha, even though they didn't have an alpha this year, even though they don't, they're probably not going to have an alpha for next year. If just some of the pieces on the chessboard were reconfigured, I think it's a, it's a like, you know, you take, take one queen from the other side and put one queen on onto your side. It's like that type of thing. It's only one piece, but it's a piece that makes a big difference. I And to me, my definition of success for next year is simple. You are competent, doesn't necessarily mean a winning team, but you're competent. And the heaviest lifting is done by guys that you feel will be here for a long time. That's to me, that's it's as simple as that. It doesn't yeah. even need to necessarily be guys on rookie contracts. Like that's, that's it. Yeah, I could see that. You know, it, just in terms of Knox, Maybe this is just kind of a glass half empty look, but I almost look at uh, the drafts not as the first round picks that are success, but the drafts as a whole. Because the fact that Mitchell Robinson is such an overwhelming success from the second round and Kevin Knox being unfortunately so far um, not impactful in a positive way (laughs) whatsoever in the first round, it kind of gets me thinking, well, yeah, you can have a complete swing and a miss in the first round, but you still had a home run in the second round. So – you can you can feel confident that you walked away from that draft hitting a home run, and I, I'm, I am with you though because I think that the, the carrying that it's almost like a badge of being a first round pick and being a lottery pick. There is a, a greater or heightened expectation, and Knox certainly hasn't lived up to that. But yes, I, I agree with you completely in terms of the heavy lifting. Although I don't think there's a problem if someone from the outside helps with that, but you do want to worry about your assets because again, players are still looked at as assets where maybe they may not be here long-term, but they can at least get you something that can then be used to get you something long-term or help to get you closer to a championship. You know, whoever that player might be. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to be, but I think it really does come down to play style and 
I think the fact that a lot of the games that the Knicks won this year were won when, you know, you know, how many games did Bobby Portis win for the Knicks? He won, you know, too many. No, seriously, he won probably like three or four games just because he was got on a hot streak and like he was he he got hot. Um, Marcus Morris, while he was here, like his shot making won them a lot of games. Julius Randle, for as much as everybody wants to hate on him, some of his big performances were the reason they won games. But again, it was indiv- like it was shot making. It was talented players doing like the heavy lifting. But but none of the but that's not. You're not developing anything. You're still a bunch of mismatched pieces. And sometimes one or two of the mismatched pieces, you know, goes off. That doesn't mean you're building anything. Next season's going to be a success. And again, there's no one blueprint for this, which is why I left it so vague. But next season's going to be a success is if, if we watch the season and we feel like, okay, they're building towards something. And it's not theoretical. It's not, oh, we have all these picks or, oh, we have all this space or, oh, these are high pedigree players and they'll probably. No, it's like you could see it. We could see it with our own eyes and it feels sustainable. And like that's, you know, maybe I'm being oversimplistic, but that's that's what I think we need to see. Yeah. And I I may have said this in the past, but there's then the argument of one year contracts and how so many fans are against having these mercenaries that. It really doesn't – there's no continuity. And the Knicks were, of all teams, um, number one in having roster turnover for the 2010s. So I get not wanting to replicate that. Yet my issue so personally isn't having one-year players. It's having players who are on one-year contracts who don't benefit anyone but themselves. And that's what this past season has felt like to me where if you are getting that Alfred Payton or that Julius Randle or that Bobby Porter, they're guys who – yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you completely. They are pieces that can sometimes fit, but usually they don't. But it's just the fact that you're not able to really do much with them. They don't have value. They, there's a reason why you're able to sign them for high amounts. And yeah, I mean, for the Knicks, in this case, a lot of these players were signed to premiums because it was a one-year deal. And I'm fine with that. I'm okay with overpaying players if you're able to stay flexible, which I am under the impression that the Knicks will want to do moving forward. But if you don't have the right guys to unlock those players who you actually care about, then what is it for? Because, yeah, I I think back instantly with Bobby Portis. I I think about the Bulls game at the Garden um, where he just went off or against the Wizards. Or I think there might have been a game against the Cavs where he did the same thing. And it's it's great to see. But what is Bobby Portis on a $15 million contract really giving you? especially if you don't see him being here long-term. So that's the thing. And you can do these one-year contracts, just make sure that they're guys who play within the flow of your system and your offense and, and aren't liabilities on defense. And it's, but there's two things that you brought up there. What, let's use two, two players whose names you just mentioned as an example. One, Bobby Portis. You're, it doesn't you no good for Bobby Portis to come in and have two or three, and I know Bobby Portis has been active on Twitter this week, and you know I, th- that's lovely that he's been engaging with fans. I think it's great, and he had some really nice stats and this and that. Yes, but if Bobby Portis has three games, good good games out of every ten, or four good games out of every ten, and the other six games he's taking as he's taking a lot more off the table than he's putting on, as opposed to just leaving it like he's not adding. Like there's. 
there's the players that take a lot off the table when they're not performing. And then there's the players that um, are, are just not adding to it. They're not taking anything off. Right. Like Wayne Ellington to me, and people may disagree with that. This is what I'm about to say. I don't feel like Wayne Ellington ever took a lot off the table because he was a competent defender. And you know what? On games when he wasn't hitting shots, you know what he was still doing? He was still flying all around the court. And he was still making life difficult for opposing defenses. Even if he went 0 for 5 or 0 for 6 or 1 for 7 or whatever it is. And guess what? By the end of the season, you know what he ended up at? He ended up as a league average three-point shooter. So give me that guy as opposed to Bobby Portis. And then the other player that I'm going to mention is, and and I'm going to use this guy to really um, make the argument against like the difference between this and Bertans, Alfred Payton. The Knicks were really good with Alfred Payton this year. They had they were 17 and 28. Well, not really good, but really good for the Knicks. Um, that's good. But where does that get you? It's like, all right, we kind of found an archetype that works, and it's with a point guard that can't shoot. Like, you're not you're not getting anywhere good in the NBA if you're building from that starting point. And to us, you know, this goes to a certain extent for Julius Randle as well. Whereas Davis Bertans on a one-year deal, aside from the fact that he's like in that Ellington mold and that even on games he's not hitting his shot, he's still helping you because he's a threat and people have to pay attention to him. Like, that's so easy to look at because it's like, okay, here's what our team will look like if we have one drop-dead shooter at a premium position on the court. Even if he's on a one-year deal, the fact that like, you know that that archetype is there and it's a sustainable archetype. That I, that to me is a lot more valuable than, let's say, getting Marcus Morris on a one-year deal, putting aside for the fact that they traded a first-round pick for him. And just like, what is he bringing you? He's bringing you just like elite shot making when he's feeling it. Like, do you see the difference that I'm I, I'm getting at there? I do. The thing with Bertans is it would have been giving up some sort of asset and then – the problem there it would have been like, oh, the Knicks are not only bringing in another power forward, but they're trading assets they don't need, and this team isn't going to go anywhere to begin with. And I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that they should. No, I'm talking about the contra- um, contrasting what they could do this offseason with what they did do last offseason. That's that, that was my point in bringing up Bertans yeah. because I think I think they absolutely will have an opportunity to sign Bertans to a big one year deal if it's enough money this season, and I think they should. Yeah, and I also don't really expect the Knicks to spend a lot on the point guard position because I do think that they're going to walk away from this draft with their guy. I agree. Whether it's Lamelo, Killian Hayes, Tyrese Halliburton, whoever it is, I think that they're going to plug that player in and start them, and they'll probably have someone like Frank coming off the bench to work with the offense, and maybe they'll have one other guy who uh, can kind of fit that role but isn't going to get paid or, or at least is is not a starter, but can provide quality in some way. Or at least isn't a player who should be start. Let me let me rephrase it. Shouldn't be a player who can't start. Basically, having another uh, Alfred Payton, where you. he shouldn't be a starter to begin with. So yeah, I'm curious as to how they direct their money. And I'm still in the sense of kind of that that big forward. But then you run into a problem with Randall. But then you don't if you trade him. And I'm still in the camp of. Don't trade him unless you get a palatable deal. And by palatable, I mean just don't take anything back that's negative. If you can trade him for for matching salary that's expiring, awesome. That's great. But 
that's the thing. It's just there's so many interesting pieces. And I know that JB also, uh, he had the clip of Randall and how he should be used. And it's fascinating, too, to just see how there are valuable pieces, but if you don't use them well enough and if they're bloated, I mean, again, financially, I don't have a huge issue with it. I do with someone like a Bobby Portis player, but if you're able to get someone and pay a little bit more, that's okay if you can get them in the building. The problem is then if you don't use them well, it has a ripple effect on the entire team. And then when you have the, this chemistry and it's just kind of like a, a law of diminishing returns at that point, it gets even worse. Like how we talk about Alfred Payton being bad and how Julius Randle was improperly used. And then how they spent so much time um, bouncing off of each other, being terrible together. It's not just like one was bad and the other is bad. It's that they were each individually bad and then bad together as well. So that's something that I'm very curious about is how you're going to find those those matchups, how you're going to find guys who are able to complement each other. And it's – yeah, but again, I, I think it, it – I don't see it getting worse than this past season, but I'm not optimistic it will be good. But as you said, it just has to be competent. And I, I don't okay. think it could be worse. I literally don't think it could be worse because I'm I'm struggling to imagine a time in recent Knicks history – like, I look, they won however many more games in, in obviously fewer tries this season. But like 2018-19, the 17-win season felt, felt like more of a step towards something than this season did on the court, only on the court, putting aside the front office changes that came. And the, you know, the first round pick that they got for, for Marcus Morris, which was obviously, which was obviously good. Um, and, and putting aside the fact that the Porzingis trade was, was in, uh, in 1819 as well. Um, you know, it, you know, it felt like a step. Um, this season did not feel like a step just again, purely on like as a team on the court. And that's what they, they have to show that next year. So yes, last season was a failure. Could it have been worse? Of course, it could have been worse. I don't know. I think the Randall question is going to be an interesting one. What's like? Do you have? Let's end. Let's end on this. Do you have like one big? Like, what is your biggest question in regards? I guess to the roster between now and you know. I don't know. Let's say trade. Forget about trade deadline. Like before next season. To to me, it's what they do with Randall, and whether they make a concerted effort to move him. And I'm like, I'm just wondering. You know, and I remember I used to have these conversations with Dave Early on Twitter a lot when he would argue that they should have traded Courtney Lee and essentially salary dump Courtney Lee when they had the chance, um, as opposed to like trying to hold out for a first round pick. And I used to fight against him on this, but he was right. Because if you like, unless you're sure a guy's going to be able to net you a real asset at a later time, like if you don't think he's part of your future, like just, I, you know, get rid of him. And do, do we really think that Julius Randle is ever going to be able to net them like a first round pick? Like is someone really giving up a first round pick for, for Julius Randle next, you know, February or March or whenever the trade deadline is? I just, I don't see it. So to me, that's my biggest question mark. How much of a concerted effort do they do they make to get him off the team, 
with the with the understanding that if he's here, he's going to start, and if he starts, he's going to be a big part of the offense um, and a liability on defense, and uh, and replace him with someone that makes more sense. So that, that's mine. What, what's yours? Well, I would say with Randall, it's probably a matter of when, not if he's traded, because the Knicks are probably going to want to use as much money as they can in 2021. And I think that his $4 million guaranteed, while not significant, could put some sort of dent into whatever plans they have, because of course, there's still going to be Joakim Noah, $6 million that's, in dead cap. That's $10 million altogether. It's not exactly. nothing. So my biggest question is honestly how the Knicks use up all of their cap space, because there's a lot of money that they'll have, and the talent out there is going to be quite limited. So I think that they will probably get some bigger name on a one-year deal. I think they'll try to see if that player can play with Randall. My guess is that they're going to look to move Randall before the season starts, not because they think he's a lost cause, but because they could probably say, look, this is a guy who did, I think he averaged like 19 and eight or 19 and nine under Mike Miller with a 55 true shooting percentage. He was this better. Is someone, yeah. It's someone who can, who can at least net you, you know, something of equal value in terms of it, it really won't harm you. It's not going to be great, but if you're able to get out of it, then that's okay. And again, you don't have to get out of it. It's just, when you're trying to construct a team, this is a player who, while he's with CAA, was not signed by Leon Rose. And it would not shock me if Leon Rose wanted to use some or all of that cap space that he's taking up and sign a guy that's that's more him, that fits what his identity is, fits what the future Knicks coach's identity is, whatever that may be. So, again, I, I think the bigger question for me, though, is the money around that because I just view Randall's amount – Mostly as a sunk cost. So how you're able to spend, depending on what the salary cap is, I mean, could be $35 million. You could say that's like three players, but I, I don't, I don't know if it is. I, I mean, it could, it could honestly be less than that. It could be two. It, it could be a, a huge bloated one year deal. And then it could be just the remainder to someone else. And the rest you kind of fill out your roster with your picks and an undrafted free agent or maybe re-signing Taj Gibson or there's of course the mellow conversation where I'm, I'm very, well, he's, he's, he's coming back. Well, yes. And, but I've had this thought of what if he doesn't want to come back yet? Oh, he's coming back. He finds that he can get a significant role on a team that's competing for the playoffs versus coming back. That's what I'm curious about. So I look, I'll bet you a post-quarantine beer. 80 to 85% chance per what Begley had said about him coming back. It would not shock me in the slightest if he is a Nick next year. But I'm just saying if he is very interested in searching for some sort of contention and he's able to find it elsewhere, it wouldn't shock me if he went there instead of New York. That's all. Um, It would shock me. If he's not a Nick next year, it would shock me. Um, especially with if they're allowed to sell tickets and get fans in the arena, which we don't know if they're going to be able to do. Um, do you think the Lakers, if they, because we know that before they didn't have an interest. Why would they have one now if they didn't have one before? Well, based on the fact that he was coming off of his Houston season versus his I, Portland season. It's a very different perspective for, for now versus then, where teams didn't want to touch him versus now where it's like, okay, well, 
we could see him as like a 10th or 11th man and he's only going to command the minimum contract. So what's really the harm? That's more the line of thinking that I'm trying to get at with Mello or, or the Clippers or some other team. You know what I'm saying? Where there's a chance that he can actually play a small role and he wouldn't cost a lot and he's still able to kind of further that contention and, and be able to compete. Again, I, I still think that he is probably going to be back in New York. I'm just I'm still curious as to if he is holding out for for winning still. Because he very well might be. He listen, he might. You never know. Crazier shit has happened. Um uh, yeah, I'd be shocked if he wasn't back. Um yeah, I'm you know, I'm excited. I'm I'm officially now that now that we could turn the page and the next season is officially over, even though it's really been over for I mean <laughs> it's really been over for about six six, seven months or you know, I mean Hell, uh, eleven months if you really want to get go drastic. Um, I'm excited and I'm I'm happy we're turning the corner, um, and and looking forward to some other stuff. And and let's end with this: uh, gun to your head. Next uh, next week we record this on Sunday at five p.m. It's become our our little time slot now, which I like. Um, are we talking about a head coaching hire that has been made? Um. This time next week. I don't think we are. I think it might take a little bit more time. Just with Zoom and everything going on in the world, I think that they're going to try to take their time a little bit because they have that luxury. It would not surprise me if maybe in two weeks we have an idea. Definitely three, but I I think next week is probably going to be quiet as well. Really? Okay. Interesting. But hey, I, I... you're a lot closer to the action than I am. So if no, I, I, listen, sense of opinion, you let us know. I'll tell, I'll tell everybody else what I, what I told you when you asked me before we started recording, which is, uh, I have not, I have not heard anything else as far as a timeline. Um, so, but I, I will say this, you know, and you texted me about it this week. Berman, Berman had uh, a piece drop a little while ago before we, we started recording and his, the way he put it was, um, and I was gonna, I was gonna retweet it and then, uh, um, JB beat me to it because, uh, J- JB is back, baby. He is back. Um, as long as John Calipari doesn't throw his hat in the ring, Thibodeau is the strong favorite. Um, Yeah. Uh, that's the only, that's, I think, I think that's telling. Um, but it's funny that Cal's name won't go away. That's, that's all. That's yeah, all. He just wants to fail Kevin Knox a second time. Oh my God. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Uh, Jeremy, anything from you before we get out of here? Well, just once again, stay safe, everyone. Stay uh, Yes. Stay safe. Thank you as always. Um, and thank you out there for listening to another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. And um, yeah, have a good week, safe week, and we will be back with you uh, with another episode very soon.